everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. My guest this week on Attendance Bias is Dennis Baker. Dennis first came to my attention toward the very beginning of the pandemic, way back in the spring of 2020. This is even before I had the idea to do attendance bias. Once the pandemic and quarantine began to settle in and people were not going outside, things were really shut down, I noticed that someone had a Twitter account and that person began to stream videos of fish shows throughout the band's entire history every single night. That person was Dennis Baker. He was conducting a sort of do-it-yourself version of Dinner in a Movie, but the big difference is that Dennis was streaming these videos every night, and they weren't from the recent part of the band's history and videos we'd all seen before. They were from everywhere from the early 90s to even the early 2000s, you know, 2.0. And this is something that interested me on a very intrinsic level. I automatically wanted to see more, and even more importantly, I wanted to know who is behind this account. So after watching a few of Dennis's videos, in addition to the Fish broadcasted dinner and a movie shows, it dawned on me that even though I'd been listening to Fish for about 25 years, I'd really been missing out on an entire perspective of the band. I knew everything from listening to the shows, but it really was like I was missing half of the show by not seeing it also. So many shows that I love and shows that I hold close to my heart have only existed in my mind's eye. I never really knew what it looked like to see Fish in 1996 or 1991 or to attend a festival before it. So when Dennis started streaming these shows, seeing them was almost like hearing them again for the first time, and I have Dennis to thank for that opportunity. For today's episode of Attendance Bias, Dennis picked November 28, 1998 from the Worcester Centrum during the band's fall tour. It's better known as the Wipeout Show, and throughout our conversation, you'll hear us compare it to the Roxy Show from February 1993, the Tinley Park 93 Antelope Show, and the Tweezer Led Zeppelin Show from Atlantic City in 2010. Every one of those mentioned shows has a song or a theme that weaves in and out throughout the show, and today's show is no different. The November 27th, 98 show has the Safari's classic Wipeout to weave in and out of the second set, where the classic surf song punctuates outstanding performances of fan favorites. More personally, it's a hometown show for Dennis, and the crowd was mostly made up of longtime New England fish fans, which added a very heartfelt and meaningful feeling for him, and he'll go into that and explain it. So let's join Dennis to hear about fish videos, what makes 96 and 98 so special, and especially November 28th, 1998 at the Worcester Centrum. Dennis, thank you for being on Attendance Bias. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I love your podcast. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here, too, as I always am. Today, you picked a show, November 27th, 1998, at the Worcester Centrum that has lived in my mind's eye for decades. Because when I was collecting fish tapes, when I was first getting into the band, I always got confused between this show and the one the previous year. 
at the Worcester Centrum. There's a lot of crossover. And so it was difficult for me to keep straight which incredible show was played in Worcester which year. So now because of you, I'll finally be able to keep it straight. All right, good. I'm glad to help with that. We got in touch over Twitter. And I first noticed your account because you do something wonderful. You kind of do your own DIY dinner in a movie in that you stream fish shows that are available somehow online. How did you first get into that and what inspired you to do so? Well, um, it was the pandemic that inspired me last year when March 13th, uh, everything shut down in a big loss for me was sport. I remember sports that weekend got shut down in the March is, you know, playoff season, end of the soccer season. So I really had nothing on my plate. So uh, I had this show that was released. It was 61894, the Chicago show. Showed up on video a year before in 2019 on PT. And then it was removed. It got posted to YouTube and was removed pretty quickly. But I kept it. So my initial reaction was when things got shut down is turn to fish. As much of my life has revolved around fish, what can I do to lessen the blow, uh, whether the pain of whatever happened, listen to fish, something happy, listen to fish. So I went to PT and I say, hey, I have this great show. And I don't think many people realize that it was out on video. Uh, so I posted on PT. If anybody wanted to watch it to kill some time and it got a big response. So that was the first night. And I kind of went from there. And you did it on a nightly basis. I decided to start doing it on a nightly basis because there was nothing else going on. And early in the pandemic, uh, the word was to stay in. I remember there wasn't, they weren't telling us to go outside and be in the air and mingle. It was kind of like locked down for a little while. So I figured we had time. We were at home and the sheer amount of fish video that's out there. I really wanted to draw attention to that too, because there is an insane amount of fish video that I'm not sure if people really realize how, um, how much there is. So I kept researching what shows were out there. And I mean, I kind of knew because I'm somewhat of a fish nerd and I just you wouldn't be on of, here if you weren't, by the way. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, I just started mapping the shows out, you know, what was happening. Um, you know, I tried to differentiate the years, not get too tied down, but the thing that really took off, um, was the island tour so i had posted to fantasy tour just promoting it i was on twitter i've been on twitter for 11 years i had about and before we move any forward i gotta cut you off there just a little bit for people who are listening to this we are recording right now on august 12th so fish is in the middle of their tour and this episode i'm guessing will air somewhere in the middle of september do you plan on still having it going on at that point yes Okay, and what is your Twitter handle for people who want to join on and watch your broadcasts? My Twitter handle is at underscore Dennis underscore system, which is it's always sunny in Philadelphia reference. Okay, Um, so it's yeah, underscore Dennis underscore system. Um, Pretty easy to find, you know, I'm follow you and a bunch of other people, but that's definitely where you can find me. Right. And I'll tweet it out. So if anyone's listening today, when this episode was released, just check any show notes that I have, or just follow me or look me up on Twitter. Dennis's handle will be linked and you'll be able to follow and watch any videos that he broadcasts. 
I wanted to ask you a little bit, since you said that you do it nightly and you had to kind of mix up which shows you didn't want to get bogged down in any specific year or era. What is your process for doing it? It was hard just to keep all that straight. Uh, I had charts. You know, I'm a fish fan. I love stats. I love that part of fish. Uh, mapping out the shows I've seen, who I've seen them with, um, things like that. So making charts for these things kind of came naturally to me. And it worked well. I kind of got in a pattern. Saturday night became the three-set show. It's Saturday night. We'll party. Uh, so it was the three-set special. And there's a million three-set shows from the festivals to, you know, 1231.95 that had existed before dinner and a movie. So that became easy. Um, and then as a palate cleanser, we would do 2.0 Sunday, which would get some, you know, gritty, dirty jams going. So those things kind of became um, somewhat of a pattern. And then any anniversaries, you know, the Island Tour, all four of those shows I played on the day. So it kind of was easy. And then once those things filled in, depending uh, on what years those were, I would adjust, you know, the different days of the week and take suggestions. One of the best things about it was the community part of it. There's a chat room on the site that I use. It's not like Twitch. Um, you know, it's not Twitch, but there is a chat room. And we were getting a lot of people, you know, 20, 30 people at least chatting. And in the early stages, there'd be as many as 100, 150 people. Um, so the community aspect, the same people with the same usernames kept showing up nightly. Um, so it became fun to chat with those guys. And a lot of them, a bunch of them are still there, you know, 22 months later, or 20 months later. Were there any fun discoveries that you made about fish videos, like any shows that you had no idea that you'd been listening to for years or that you pictured? in your own head that you said, Oh my God, there's video of this. I got to see this. Any great discoveries? 61894 was one, but that had predated my, um, you know, doing this. So the next really great unearthed gem was 112294. Um, geez, I'm blanking on where it's from Minnesota. Well, six, there, 618 is the UIC pavilion, right? Chicago, is that the one yes. with the famous divided sky? Yes, where Trey has the moment during the Divided Sky right. and the David Bowie from that show is just one of my favorite things Fish has ever done. Uh, right. It blows my mind that four people can play that way. So that <laughs> and the next show one was 112294. 112294, um, which has a very famous funky bitch. The second set opener is a 20 plus minute version of Funky Bitch. And that show appeared out of nowhere. I don't even know where I, I just looked one day on a hard drive and I seem to have it. And that show, besides having the great funky bitch is, you know, prime, you know, fall 94. There's an amazing foam. There's a part of foam that Trey turns his guitar. Basically, oh, they go to the quiet jam and basically they're playing unamplified. The video is hooked up to the soundboard. So you can actually hear, you know, Trey plucking the strings entirely unamplified and you realize at some point you're hearing what the people in the audience couldn't even hear right the soundboard uh, who were far enough back so to have that on video I, i've always liked that show so those two shows in particular but then i just want to say about the year 96 there are a ton i would say there might be the most uh, videos from 1996 of any year I don't know. I don't know if it was just when, you know, maybe camcorders, maybe some smaller versions were 
little able, um, better able to sneak into a show maybe. But November especially, there's, I think, eight or nine shows just from November alone. And then there's Vegas in December and then the whole New Year's run. But the quality, 96 gets a bad rap a lot. Um, not a lot of huge, well-known jams as compared to 97 and 95. So it kind of gets lost in the shuffle. But there is such a tightness and precision and quality of the playing and there's a lot of points when you can hear the tug of war between what's to come in 97 and what they had just done in 95. Definitely. Um, I always call it a transition year. And I think a lot of people take that as some sort of pejorative, but it's more an objective statement. Like you just said, you could hear the in-between, which doesn't mean it's bad. It just means they were finding themselves. Right. And there is uh, a certain fire of quality of like the type one that Trey plays with. And it's almost the last, you know, go of it. It's not the 95 leading up to that, but once 97 happened, you know, he didn't, it, it was different. And I love 97, but there's this really fire quality to a lot of November 96 that I, I love uh, the shows like uh, 11, 16, 96, the Omaha show um, with that long, there's a Harry hood with the long note. Trey holds the note for like for the note. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it's three minutes, a good three minutes, but that whole show is just quality from top to bottom. Let's time travel back a little bit. How did fish first enter your life? Like how, before we get to 1996 and then 1998, where did it start for you? My, I had friends that were into fish and it was high school living in Massachusetts, you know, growing up halfway between Worcester and Boston in 90s you know the early 90s i graduated high school in 94 fish was you know a name that everybody knew i had friends that were into them and i heard some songs it didn't really grab me right away i was still in my you know classic rock uh kind of phase you know super into zeppelin super and, into the beatles and this was a time when when boston or at least the new england area mass i'll just use massachusetts as a catch-all for new england when that really was the center of the fish world. Yes. Yes. And it actually ties in. I have something to say about the, the uh, wipeout show and that and Thanksgiving 98 new year's run, but um, uh, Thanksgiving run, but everything. Uh, yeah. They, this was the center of where they were. I knew people who were at um, new year's 93 in the center. My friends were at the game henge 94 um, Mansfield show. So they were a band that I had heard about that, I didn't quite really listen to in depth or, you know, I heard a little bit of divided sky one day and didn't really grab me. Um, so they were on my radar, but when I went to college is when I really uh, figured out who they were and what they were about. And what was your first show then? So my first show was the summer after my freshman year called seven one ninety five Mansfield, which is a really good show. I, at, at that point I had only heard, you know, uh, a couple of the albums I'd heard Junta, Rift, and Hoist. So I believe Maze and If I Could might be the only two songs from those albums at that show. Um, unfortunately, I didn't even know how good the If I Could was because it had that long instrumental passage to open to, as the intro, but I had no idea what that was. Uh, I wish I could have appreciated it a little more. But the one thing I took away is that 
I had never seen any band like this before. Um, just the presentation. They came on stage. There was no hello, Mansfield. How's everybody doing? They came on, they plugged in, and they started playing. Yeah, no stage decoration, it, right? Nothing. No pomp and circumstance. They played. The song ended. They played again. The set was over. They walked off stage. And so what uh, were you it comparing was, it to? In your mind at the time, what were some previous concerts that made a big impression on you for what live music, quote unquote, should be? I mean, I, I, I hadn't even seen a ton of live concerts. I had seen Van Halen. I had seen Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. The first concert I ever saw was Janet Jackson at the Worcester Centrum. Cool. Uh, in 1989. So uh, I think I also saw Paula Abdul when I was in eighth grade. So I had these. It was more of a show. Uh, like even Van Halen, these you know guitar solo segments and pyrotechnics, and there wasn't it, there was always interaction with the crowd. At least what I've come to realize isn't really interaction. It's just you know coming on and saying the same thing every right, stop. It's choreography, How are basically. You? Right, that's exactly what it was. Fish wasn't interested in any of that, so that stood out to me uh, at first, and then the thing that. I kind of find funny is on the way out of the show, I heard two people, you know, in the crowd next to me say, Hey, we don't have tickets to sugar bush, but do you want to just drive up tonight and we'll camp out and look for tickets tomorrow? And I thought that is the most insane thing I've ever heard. They're just going to drop what they're doing and go up. Like who would do that within the next five months? Uh, I would become one of those people clearly. When was this show played? So this show was at the very end of a 22-show fall tour. This was night one of a three-night run in Worcester, which, at least to my knowledge, is known as the Wipeout Show. If you don't, you know, if someone says Worcester 98, kind of a synonym or a pseudonym is the Wipeout Show with a capital W, capital S. Overall, this was a pretty goofy tour. It began with the loaded Halloween show in Las Vegas, and then after that, in case anyone needs reminding, the band did the ultimate punk on their fans when they played Dark Side of the Moon two nights later in Salt Lake City, which I am a huge fan of, uh, not just the Dark Side show and how amazing that is, but the idea of punking your fans. Since All of Fish is a joke, I love it when they kind of have a good nature joke on the fans. I'm a big fan of practical jokes. Absolutely. It's one of those things that makes fish fish yeah um, the you snooze you lose um i, I remember it, the amazing thing about dark side is that it comes so late in the show um, yeah it's a little of a hard pull uh, no less yes uh so i mean the first set is you know fantastic with a tube and a drowned the second set i mean that's probably 45 or 50 minutes into the second set before they do hard pool before they do the whole album after that dark side show there's also notable the back-to-back -back shows at Hampton that was released as Hampton Comes Alive. And overall in this tour, the set lists leaned very heavily on the story of the Ghost album, which would which was recently released at the time. It was released actually two days before the tour started. Uh, it was really common if you went to a couple shows that you heard Birds of a Feather, uh, Brian and Robert, Ghost, Mama Dance, and so forth. Those were kind of the most common new songs. When I say new, I mean new in, in that they were on the new album. Uh, and also not to mention some one-time covers or songs from the summer of covers, which was earlier in the year. 
So where were you in the fall of 1998? I didn't see any shows this tour. I was just about 16 years old, not even 16. So this was my prime fish time. I was a senior in college. I had turned 22 that summer. So, um, and I went to school in Worcester. I went to Assumption College in Worcester. I had an apartment less than a mile from the Centrum. So, um, and now this was three years in, you know, my first show was 7195. This is now three and a half years into it. I had completely, I was completely obsessed, you know, with the band, devouring tapes from before I got into them, devouring the mythology, you know, reading the early Farmer's Almanac. So this was, I was, you know, entirely invested in fish at this point. I was too. This was when I was checking set lists every morning on Gadiel's website and the idea of a new cover. And these were songs that I knew a lot of songs that they covered before 1998, a lot of songs that they covered. I didn't really know, but these were songs that were pretty popular, including today's with Wipeout. To see them in the summer of 98 cover song like um, Been Been Caught Caught Stealing. Stealing. Right, exactly. So it was the classic rock cover. You know, even my first couple of years and the fish that I had listened to when I was getting into them, it was, you know, 70s stuff, you know, some 80s. But there was really not a lot of contemporary uh, covers. So to hear them start doing Been Caught Stealing and I was at the Sabotage show. And then I was at, you know, Hampton getting jiggy with it. And something, uh, <laughs> let's not forget. Yes, yes, of course. Um, and it just opened up uh, a whole new, it just, that those days were so much fun. And those covers uh, were so much fun. And we'll get into it in a few seconds. But I think a few words have to be said about Trey's tone in the fall of 1998. I'm sure you have a lot to say. I mean, it's just such a wonderful tone. I wish I could describe it you know, in a <laughs> nerd type of way. Yes, but it is it's so sweet and smooth and rounded. Um, and I have had people point out, um, you know, one of the things about my the chat room on SciTube is it has some really smart people, some really uh, musically smart people and who will point out things as they're happening. And they've pointed out the difference between Trey's 98 tone and 97 tone. To me, they sound really very similar, almost alike. I just love them. But it's great to, and you can hear the difference if you know what you're looking for, which I really don't. Neither do um, I. But, but the 98 tone, that especially that, the way that it sounded in these old arenas too, these old hockey arenas that weren't necessarily built for concerts, you know, Hampton, New Haven, Albany, Worcester, those things. Nassau uh, Coliseum. It, Nassau. And I think it probably speaks to the uh, level of the fish, you know, Paul and the fish sound crew and what they were doing. You know, they had things so dialed in by 98 as a whole touring machine, um, the band, the crew, the lights. So it really, it all came together so well and it sounded amazing. Set one. So the first set opens with Funky Bitch, which is always a good opener. It was played 17 times in 1998, almost always in the first set. And right away I knew, okay, this is a 98 show. It felt comfortable to me listening to it many years later. They're a little bit slower than what we're used to now, or even before 1998. You could actually hear that the band is so at home at this tempo. It's completely in the pocket. 
Yeah, it's a great opener, great song to get everybody, you know, into the show. Uh, I had seen it a week before. It's funny, I look back and I think of how snobby I was sometimes <laughs> when I <laughs> was too. younger and jaded. And I remember looking to my friend who we had gone to Hampton. We'd done the whole last week of tour, starting with Hampton. And we said, oh, well, geez, we saw this in Hampton, which was a week ago. And it was, you know, four or five shows. There's nothing wrong with playing it a week later. But our initial instinct was kind of, oh, geez, this song again. <laughs> but uh, it's a really strong opener. I think Mike sounds amazing. And one of the things I want to point out is this being a hometown show um, for Mike. Mike grew up in Sudbury with Mass, which is a half an hour from Worcester. Uh, I can't help but think that he had family here for the show. Um, well, it's funny. Like I noticed home. in our notes, I noticed that you, there was a motif from your contributions that you kept referring back to Mike. To me, I kept referring back to Paige. It's just funny how two different people with different sets of ears can zone in on two different parts of a show and we're both right. Right. And we are both right. There's two other parts. Someone could talk about Trey and Fish and all four of us would be right. They played Yamar next, which is a great chaser always. And it had a really interesting little outro. Aside from it, I haven't heard many Yamars that caught my attention. But toward the end of this Yamar, I think it's at about eight minutes or so, maybe eight and a half minutes, that it goes off the beaten path. Yeah, we both noted at the same time about the eight minutes, it kind of drifts off. Uh, it doesn't get too far out there, but it just drifts off. And what's really impressive is how easily it just slides out. And we just say it kind of just hangs out there a little bit. There's no hurry to really get back to what they were doing with Yamar. Trey does this little repeating lick, this loop thing towards the end, and it just kind of hangs out in that space and then ends. Yeah, and then it goes right into Karini, which I love. This is my highlight of the first set because not even musically speaking, but compared to what a monster it's become. And back then, how long is this? Maybe five and a half minutes, five minutes and 22 seconds. And it's not quite fully baked. It's pretty short. It packs a wallop. Uh, Karini was still pretty elusive back then, too. People view it now, like you said, as a set opener. I mean, it opens shows, big jams. I, I was looking before. I'm, this is, I think, the, only the fourth version that was played in America at the time. And this is only the second of the tour. There was one in UIC. You know, to see Karini was a treat back then. 
And to tie in the video aspect, there's an amazing video of this show. The, the quality of the video for this show is amazing. And you can see Trey uh, having such a fun time during this song specifically. This to me is kind of when the show really amps up a little bit. Uh, we talk about those licks. Uh, you and I had the same notes, the dun dun, and then Trey really kind of hitting those licks in between that and then going yeah. right back to that heavy. And you can see the video uh, that he's absolutely loving that part. So again, it's like you said, it's only about five minutes, but it really uh, has some good energy. And up next is Runaway Jim, which I don't think it could be helped, reminds people that a year ago, almost to the date, is or was the Runaway Jam, right? That famous almost hour long Runaway Jim. And this one is very different. It's only about eight minutes or so, maybe nine. And they, they kind of go all over the place in a compact jam they get very quiet about two minutes in there's a great little piano guitar duel about six minutes in it builds tension toward the end but nothing and i don't mean this as an insult but nothing crazy compared to what we learned a year ago at this point right it, that was everybody's first thought when you hear the opening you know chords in the worcester centrum after that monster which you know i i liked but i didn't love it was you know it was an experience my initial reaction was, oh, no, like here we, you know, and I knew we weren't going to get another hour long version. But one of the things that stands out to me here is just listening to the interplay between the band. I'm making note, you know, around the four minute, 430 mark. Trey is clearly locked in and listening to, you know, Mike and uh, Mike and Paige, especially he and Trey and Paige share a lot of ideas and spend a lot of time in this show really locked in on each other. And it just shows that they're in such fine form. all year together they you know coming off in 97 there was the island tour and then the ghost sessions and then europe summer and then u.s summer and then the ghost promotional things so they were really fish all fish all the time and the ease with everything you described through this you know compact jam they just fly through it effortlessly right and it says something that it doesn't even stand out unless you're listening for it. You know, it's just something you could take for granted. Yes, you could easily miss this in listening to the show. You talk for a minute, you know, you have it on your home, you talk for a minute, not paying attention, it's come and gone. Uh, but if you listen, there's some really um, nice, good, good playing happening. After that is meat. And then the big part of the set, which if you're talking strictly about music and fun tension and release jamming, is my highlight, which is Reba. And I have a feeling you feel the same way. 
Absolutely. Reba always had a huge um, place, you know, in my fish love. It's probably one of my top five fish songs. So Meat was good. And like you said, Story of the Ghost, uh, these songs were pretty common. I'd seen Meat at Hampton a week earlier. So I think I kind of brushed that one off. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the opening notes of Reba, it's just, every it picks everybody up. It's such a fun opening when people realize oh yes here we go with Reba and you can hear it on the audience recording yes you can uh to know you know and it's such a fun song part and then to know the composition which is great and then the jam that's coming and I thought this I I think you can really hear the playing between Trey and Mike and Paige in this too you said I think in our notes about how Mike really kind of steps forward uh and really takes a you know a prominent place early on in the gym right and my thought was how often does that happen during reba of all songs that's why i love that beginning quiet part of reba it's almost like the quiet part of hood um, yeah you know it's that slave it's the calm before the storm to really you know there's some great interplay going on and you kind of hear how the gym gets set up going from there I thought this was really outstanding all around. And again, Trey's tone, I have no tear about the ways <laughs> Trey's tone sounded in the centrum that night uh, really sounds incredible. And toward the end, there's this great peak at about 12 minutes. And the only word I could think of is Trey's guitar was soaring high. Uh, he had such a, such a big release from the tension that was building then. Fishman, I noticed he had such touch during this jam. He's always supporting the dynamics, the highs and the lows. 
but the whole band is like is so great they're playing so many notes where fishman is just kind of slowly pushing kind of like in that garbage disposal scene in star wars where the walls are slowly closing in you know i feel like that's fishman just it's just slowly pushing 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 but doing it in a steady rate at the same time and it must be such a difficult thing to manage in a you know a band like fish especially at a time like reba that this peak is coming in this wall and rush of sound uh and for him to delicately um, you know, play with that is such a, um, that's why he's such an amazing drummer. Um, yeah. He probably definitely doesn't get the credit he deserves. But that, what you said about that, and I have in my notes here, Trey's soaring guitar, ringing out. You can really hear him, uh, you know, the vibrato on these notes. And it sounds so incredible uh, inside the Centrum. And that's something, it happens all night long. There's a, the many more instances where his guitar ringing out and soaring like that sounds just really great they follow up with the old home place which is a perfect cool down placement fish bluegrass is always welcome it's a nice way to kind of cleanse the palate musically speaking and then they go into dog stole things which i kind of group with meat which was played earlier in the set in that it's kind of an underplayed weird afterthought song it would probably find a welcome spot in the rotation if it were played more often but it just isn't right i mean you never think uh you never hear dog stole things in a set and say like oh i can't imagine that set without dog stole things. <laughs> right. and i think uh it's kind of like this back at the chicken shack you know that they were doing back at the same time i do love that page sound the the organ solo so yep. but this was definitely a, a nice little filler but I really love old home place too. I, I love when I love fish bluegrass yeah. listening to the tapes when I was first getting into them, it was such a big part of their sound. So I've always enjoyed, and I still enjoy today when they, they do bluegrass. In the Me first too. They follow that up with vultures, which is only about a year and a half old. This is just the 13th time that it was played. And this has always been a fan favorite. It still is. If they played it tomorrow night, Everyone is excited. Oh, they played Vultures. And for some reason, this one hit the, the heart of the fan base immediately. There's a part at three minutes during their during the chorus where Trey says, blind me with ambition with a potato to the throat instead of a razor. Yes. What, what is that? I don't know. I don't know what <laughs> it is. I don't know where it came from. I noticed it. I clearly remember turning to my friend and at this show and saying, what did he just say? Like that wasn't the razor to the throat line. So it definitely was noticeable right away. I'm not sure where it came from. And I know for a fact, it was definitely that way through most of 99. I heard a couple in the summer of 99 that I will, I'll, I'll swear that it's definitely potato to the throat. And I don't know if I've ever heard a reason for the change or an interview or anybody's even asked trey about that i'll have to next time tom marshall comes on here i'll have to ask him about that because i feel yeah. like i'm a victim of the mandela effect right now and so they uh they play when the circus comes to town my favorite and then they close the whole set with birds of a feather which you said is one of your favorites right it's probably my favorite type one birds of a feather ever um again talking about just the way trey is playing guitar tonight I really like these Fall 98 birds, too. Um, Me, too. And it debuted in the Island Tour just earlier that year. And it's such a difference from the two debuts. Yeah. Um, you know, 4-2 and then 4-4, four, four, which by the end of 4-4, four, four, it got taken pretty far out there. 
um, it, I think all of the summer 98 versions or most of them, um, once they came back to the U S were pretty straightforward. And again, similar here. Um, I like the Vegas version from the first set of Halloween, but this one to me all is, is just all about Trey and it's all about the last minute, minute and a half. It goes through mm-hmm. until then fine. And Trey sounds great and it's rocking, but he hits this point about six minutes, where he just hits another level and really starts playing these, I have in my notes, searing leads. Yeah, I wrote his guitar is a force of nature. so great that night in the centrum but looking back and now the way he solos through the outro chorus when he comes back singing birds of a feather he actually steps away i'd like he steps away from the mic at one point and it's just page and mike singing and he's just in another world blazing the last 30 or 40 seconds and you can see it on the video too again i love referencing the video because it's really it's amazing that we have this show on video. It's such a historical document of what it looked like that night in the centrum. And Trey is totally getting off at this point. Um, it's so funny thinking that hosting this show for about a year that I've learned so much about fish and listened to so much more fish than not than I ever had previously, but thinking about it through different lenses and then talking to you, realizing how much video there is out there. There's so much more to learn just by seeing the band play as opposed to only hearing the band play, like disembodied instruments compared to seeing faces and body language. And that's what hit me when I first found that that UIC show was on video. I love that David Bowie so much uh, and the divided to think that, wow, I'm going to be able to see Trey's face during one of what I consider the best things they've ever done. Uh, So to see them and to see them, even the unspoken interplay, just the way they'll turn and look at each other during a jam. um, There's so much, there's such a visual aspect. And that's before we even talk about Corona to see the different, you know, iterations of his lights over the years from 94 to 95, now 98. So these videos add so much more to what is already super rich, you know, just listening to this on tape is a rich experience. Do you remember how you felt uh, after the first set or comparatively how you feel now about it? I liked all the songs they played. Uh, They were all played well uh, and there was a really good Reba. So I figured, Hey, that's a good, good first set, but nothing that, you know, moves the needle tremendously. It's what you would hope to expect 
back then, especially back then. I mean, they could play so well. They played so many shows. So that was pretty, you know, I'd say standard with a couple of really good highlights. Set two. Set two opens with Buried Alive, which is in capital letters, always a good sign when a set opens with Buried Alive. I think that now I thought that the first time I saw it, which I think was at Jones Beach in 2009, uh, they played it as recently, unless I'm wrong, uh, as uh, Mohegan Sun. I think they opened one of the sets there with Buried Alive. It's always a good sign. It was played just four times in 1998. And this one, 11-27-98, was the last time that it was played until July 1st, 2000 in Hartford. It was weird from the get-go, and that makes my ears perk up immediately. It gets really dissonant. It's only about three and a half minutes, but about halfway through, it gets less precise than I'm used to with Buried Alive. There's a lot of notes in Buried Alive, and about halfway through, Trey just, again, to his tone that we were talking about, creates this wall of sound that is perfect for its time, and it got me excited. This is a perfect fish opener for me. Uh, it would be my choice as the best fish opener. I've only seen five and three of them were at the Centrum. And then the other two were the one after this in Hartford 2000. And I was at Mohegan when they opened the show with it. It just puts everything in such a great mood. Um, it, it, the, just the feeling uh, that it gets, you know, the way Buried Alive kind of creeps in with Fishman's drums getting a little louder, yeah. a little louder. And the one here, you know, Trey's doing that little kind of at, at the beginning, that kind of like, chicka, chicka, chicka. it sounds really amazing. So I think right away, I, I'm thinking, wow, like they're kind of into this, they're feeling it. And then what you said, when it gets really different and it just becomes this noise that becomes a theme throughout, especially a little later in the set with the mics and the Wikipog. Yeah, your ears perk up. It's not this, you know, classic, you know, a million notes. Uh, buried alive it's more kind of like a, the end of maze you know when trey is just wailing on that guitar and screeching i also think of this date this is 11 27 this is hendrix's birthday i've thought about that a lot over the years there's a sound check to the show that they do some hendrix come on let the good times roll and that never occurred to i me. yes i really feel uh that there's a lot of like hendrix influence on trey this set whether it's intentional or not I, I can't imagine he set out to do it but you know what was the last live fish release that was 11 27 96 that seattle show again trey is out of his mind on that playing guitar um so i can't help but think that even subconsciously he knew that you know this was hendrix's birthday and there's a lot of similarities between the two sonically like you said that wall of sound um you know that just wave coming at you that about halfway through this very hendrixy to me and once it's over they play wipeout which is you know every kid has tried to play the drum solo and wipeout at five or six years old right after they hear it and so you think this would be a like a regular go-to for fish but they hadn't played it since 1991 i was thinking maybe they heard it on the radio or on the or like on the tour bus or at set break, like they heard it somewhere in the background. I mean, it's one of the most fun songs in rock history and it's lasted since 1963. Yeah. Yeah. How many songs have come and gone where, you know, if you ask any American born and raised kid, you know, do you play Wipeout? Everyone knows it. Everybody does. It's, you know, just goes to show that, 
that simple aspect. I mean, how many notes is Wipeout even? It's it's pretty repetitive all the way through, but it's so catchy, and I, I don't think it'll ever be forgotten. Right, and um, it, it automatically connects the band to the fans immediately at the beginning of this set after Buried Alive, and they go right into Chalk Dust Torture, which is a great call because they're both at 100 miles per hour. And of course, there's immediate wipeout teases because you could fit it in anywhere. perfectly right in with that opening and at that point at at this point you know when wipeout first started it just didn't hit me what it was i thought this maybe is this johnny be good or what what is this and then it had you know wipeout and once it showed back up and shocked us you had the thought of oh is this going to be one of those shows you know not like a you know almost like a bomb factory or a 230 uh 220 Oh, okay. This could be where Trey weaves in and out of things, which I had never seen before. But um, another thing I notice about, and I didn't notice it at the time, is the mirror in the bathroom teasing. Yeah, I had especially. no idea what this is. I had to look it up while we were listening. So I never, I did not know what mirror in the bathroom was, but I thought it was the most perfect segue. And it just was so smooth. And considering some of Fish's covers, you know, the one-time covers, sometimes they're sloppy a little bit. This one, like I said, I had no idea what it was, but it sounded amazing. I almost thought it, it was meant to be put into that spot. Well, yeah, it sounds more organic than a lot of the one-time covers that they do. It just, I thought it was NICU when they first started playing that fast, like ska, reggae sort of beat. I thought that's where they were going. And then when they, when I saw on the set list, Mirror in the Bathroom, I had to look it up. It's by uh, English Beat. I just didn't know what it was. And as soon as I realized what it was, they were out of it back into Choctaw's Torture. Yes, so fast, in and out. I, I don't know if they practiced it. Sometimes I think... Fish has fooled us all by thinking by us thinking that this is all off the cuff and they're just laughing in the back room as they're planning all this out, you know, as they blow our minds. All those fools think we didn't practice this. 
but um it makes me wonder because it's so good and i'm clearly just joking but the way they go in and out of this is so smooth i would be you know hard pressed to think they hadn't played it as a band or like during a sound check maybe yeah and it's funny the soundtrack exists for this and they don't they don't they play wipeout in the soundcheck but they do not play a mirror in the bathroom and then like you said to slam right back into chalk dust and this and is now the real every- chalk dust torture this is really where we hear chalk dust torture that it's whole band type one jamming they fall back into kind of half time jamming especially from fishman it's very unusual they get to the regular awesome chalk dust torture peak about 2 minutes into this track and then there's a crazy drum fill which I thought when I listened to it a second time, Fishman was trying to get back into Wipeout and they ended with a blues shuffle of all things. It's amazing how quickly they shuffle through all those ideas. I think all of what you described might take two and a half, you know, three minutes, four minutes. Yeah. Uh, to go from the chalk dust, which is blazing, blazing. Trey is on fire. Uh, just notes, a million notes. Uh, there's that big, big peak, the tension and release. Um, bit about the 205, 210 mark, which just blows the roof off the place. And they kind of slow down. Trey does that low guttural kind of tension noise thing. And then it all ends up into the blue shuffle, which I don't know how that even happened. Sometimes well, I try to go one, back and listen. Yeah, I think when it goes into the blue shuffle, it turns into dog log. When you were just talking a minute ago about did they plan it out? Is it spontaneous? To me, this had to be spontaneous because it doesn't sound anything like dog log. It's just Trey kind of reciting the lyrics and singing them that the band just kind of grabs onto it and follows along. That's my theory, my opinion, that this isn't yeah. really a plan ahead. We're going to play dog log this set. It was Trey loves this song, almost like Catapult, where he wants to take any opportunity he can to sing it. And this is just that because the minute they go into dog log, the lyrics cycle through, then they're back to chalk dust again. Right. And it was funny, the blues shuffle. I'm like, where is this going? Thinking at the show. I mean, it sounds like my soul. And the only thing was it sounds like my soul-ish. But a little bit, yeah. I, 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 you know, it's the only context of that straight blues thing, you know, at that point. But it didn't sound like they were actually going to play my soul. Um, so it was at this point, now we're thinking, oh, wow. So we've gotten a crazy segue into a song we don't know. And now back into now what is dog log and you say in your notes, we were on the fringes of a special show. That feeling was really evident in the building. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this was a Thanksgiving 
a Thanksgiving crowd. This is a veterans fish crowd. And it's funny. I was only 22 at the time, but you know, I've been seeing them for three and a half years. There were clearly people a lot more veteran than I was, but it wasn't, it did have the feeling of a, you know, a mature, not a summer crowd, which maybe is a little more partying, maybe a little younger, but this clearly, uh, you know, fish veterans who knew what was happening at this point. Yeah. And lucky for all of them, they go back into Choctaw's torture after dog log. And while listening to it, I had the sense, I made a mental connection of they were 12 years apart, but this show and the October 30th, 2010 tweezer Led Zeppelin show the night before waiting for Columbus, where they weaved in and out of all these different Led Zeppelin songs within tweezer. And I thought, all right, they're doing this, but with Choctaw's torture now, and I am here for it. I love both of them. These types of shows played such um, a big role. You know, when I was getting into the band, I'm sure when you were listening to tapes, you know, going back to the Roxy mm-hmm. to 2093 and then the Bomb Factory and these shows that they just weave in and out of songs um, and it's just magical. And you always hope, you know, these things happen pretty infrequently. But we were definitely at this point getting one of those. And I was also at that Atlantic City show, which is a top, you know, as top of fish experience as I've ever had. I love that night. That's exactly what I was thinking during that Tweezer Zeppelin thing. I was thinking of the Wipeout show. And they stop on a dime at the end of this Choctaw's torture for sanity. And I mean, Sanity, there's not many more special songs. Um, You know, my best friend really got me into fish and he impressed upon me how important Sanity was and how rare it was. And if you ever catch Sanity, (laughs) you know, feel you're completely fortunate. I had seen one in, in Maine, Lemon Wheel, just a few months earlier was my first one. So then to see this, was incredible and i really love the way the trey you know hits into sanity he kind of plays that they just come up with a descending riff to end chalk dust it really doesn't have much to do with chalk dust itself but it's the you know the last note the way he resolves that is the first note of sanity and i always wonder how he can do that how he can orchestrate all this on the fly it's not, for us, hour. It, it's not for us mere no, mortals to understand. It's not. And you, you think just on sit in level. awe of it. Like the fact that he would think and realize that they were in a special enough spot to play Sanity and the way they went into it. I did listen to the tape or the audience tape for this part. And you can hear it's not a crazy roar, but it's an, you know, it's an intense appreciation of of what is happening kind of spreading throughout the arena next they play another big time rarity buffalo bill it's just one after another yeah i always wonder if they decide backstage hey we're just gonna kill it tonight we're just gonna go all out tonight that idea of you know these are these debates i used to have in elementary school of can michael jordan just turn it on can he just decide to go off on a team as opposed to be merely standard great night tonight you know as i grew up in new york as a knicks fan and michael jordan always played his best against the knicks he always crushed us 
Yeah, it was very rare for the Knicks to beat the Bulls in the 90s, at least in the Especially mid-90s. in Madison Square Garden. Yeah, where he would score 50 points or what have you. And But we always, my friends and I would always think, does he just choose to be better against the Knicks? Does Fish just choose to be better at the Worcester Centrum? Or is it just something about the building? You know, when Jordan gets to MSG, it's just this, you know, he just can't help it, which might be, you know, what happens here. I would think not being a you know musician or anything, it would be hard to say, okay, tonight's going to be the night. But what one thing I, I've been thinking of to realize that you're in the middle of it, I think, or to realize how special it is at, at some point, you know, maybe Trey walked off the stage after the first set because he was clearly jazzed about what was happening and whether subconsciously just started thinking of, rare songs or I I don't know how that would work but to be able to call I mean in a row dog log sanity and now buffalo bill I would like to see if that's the most you know consecutive rare trio in a <laughs> row and it would be an interesting project to do but if it's not it's right up there because all three of those if you see one in a lifetime yeah you know, you're pretty satisfied. And I really enjoy this Buffalo Bill. Uh, and even going back to the sanity, I really love the execution of the sanity, the boom pow part. Like they're really yeah. into it. Like they are clearly having a great time. Fishman's kind of hooting in the background. I find his backup vocals during the end of sanity are hilarious. Buffalo Bill has a cool guitar solo, which at some point over the years has gotten phased out. Uh, yeah. I, I don't believe they do the guitar solo at all anymore. So it was really cool um, to hear, to, to listen back and to hear them actually playing Buffalo Bill and not just singing the song and then just ending. And after Buffalo Bill, we're really deep in it and they start Mike's song. And I have to imagine this is this is the perfect placement. This is, I don't know, the the best dessert after a full meal where it's everything you want at the time. They're in the middle of an all time set. They're right in the heart of it. And they're breaking out what I think is at the time their best jam vehicle. Mics from the late 90s are unstoppable. They're the best that there is. And they play Mike's Hydrogen Weekapog and a lot within there. But it must have been like we're at the top of the roller coaster now. There's a million songs you could have called. None more perfect than Mike's song, um, especially at the, the hometown boy, hometown show, let Mike take center stage. <laughs> right. And it's the perfect, you know, how do you follow up the last 20 minutes of, of madness, but all those crazy rare songs and bust outs. Now let's get deep into, a, you know, a classic like you said, classic pairing. And back then, Mike's song was maybe the first song I really fell in love with. 123093 was my first tape. 
really formative and that's still maybe my favorite mike song so again the collective energy in that place if i I didn't think it could get any higher but now (laughs) we're even on another level knowing what's to come just with this mike's jam and it it we you know we talk about these on the notes but it's you know pretty typical pretty typical and then eight minutes it turns into this big mush like that abstract sound right you talked earlier about how 96 had hints of both 95 and 97 i thought that this version of mike's song at that time you pointed out eight minutes where it was kind of hints of 1999 and 2000 like a look forward into this big mush of sound this big abstract ambience that i thought was present here that would become more of a trademark toward the very end of the decade. Very much so. And to hear this inside, too, again, the, the sonics, uh, you know, the way this sounded inside the Centrum, it, a, a big wash of sound, but it was so clear. It wasn't muddy. It, it very defined. It really sounded incredible. And they go into I Am Hydrogen as is their want. You know, that's normal. But it takes a while for hydrogen to begin. When I listened to this again yesterday, I noticed that Fishman was in on hydrogen right away. The drum beat changes almost immediately from mics into hydrogen. But it takes a long time for the rest of the band to settle down into the song. It's almost a hydrogen jam because, like you said, Fishman gets into it first. Um, it, it does sound like it could end up in simple, but then once it settles and it's clear that Fishman's playing the drum beat for Hydrogen, uh, it, it is a while. And this one kind of falls together piece by piece. I was listening uh, yesterday and Mike starts the bass line at about 2.45. So it's 2.45 before anybody else even joins Fishman. And then from then, it's still another you know minute or so. And at this point, Personally, this is only the third hydrogen I had seen. I, this is my ninth Mike's groove. I just looked it up yesterday, but this was only the third hydrogen. So I was really excited to see hydrogen at this time. Uh, it was pretty rare for me. And they closed it out with Weekapog Groove, which is always fun, super fun as usual, with a lot of shifts and dynamics. And they played a lot of different types of music during this. And I thought this is why 98 is the best, you know, maybe low key, the best year 
of their history, one could argue that they could access virtually all of their strengths on a whim and then do it seamlessly. Like they, they start with speed rock. They turn to funk just right away. And I think about four and a half minutes, and then they're back to rocking again at six 30 before, of course, going into wipeout, which had to happen because of the speed that week Pog has played. Of course, you're going to go into wipeout because of how fast that song is. And then they close it again with Weekapog. It's it it's everything in the set, which is what they're doing kind of now on this summer 2021 tour that we're in the middle of, that they start with one theme and kind of weave it in and out throughout the entire set. This is coming back again back in 1998. And they have so many tools at their disposal at this point. Um, you know, think about what years are my favorite or what years are the best. And, you know, I love 94, but in 95, they could do what they did in 94 plus what they learned in 95. Like every year they kind of add a little more. And by 98, the bag of tricks that they have um, that they blast through in seven or eight minutes of this week of pog, again, so effortlessly, so seamlessly, um, the shifts in dynamics, shifts in speed, they go not only, you know, they do that standard breakdown. We've all heard the week of pogs and they'll do a standard breakdown and then they'll come out of that and end it. But this one, they go back. There's two, you know, kind of breakdowns. Then they go back into the wipeout, which, you know, brought everybody kind of uh, back to reality for a second, kind of snapped us like a rubber band snapping us back. Oh yeah. This is where this all Remember started. that all the way back at the you beginning. Know, yeah. 45 minutes ago. And the speed that they come out of Wipeout is like a runaway freight train. Uh, the tempo is just insane. And then they have a false ending of Weekapog. And when they dropped back into Weekapog, it was like, well, of course, Trey is one step ahead. You know, there wasn't any song that could really have we didn't want to go back into the song portion of the set trey absolutely knew you know this is what he wanted and i kind of listened to the i think it's the first breakdown in the week of pog it borders on where they kind of go here quite you know pretty quickly so i always think in my head that trey must have had it in his mind to to go back like that was a cool section let's go back and explore that and you talk about what else to play. They close the whole set and the whole show before the encore is run like an antelope, which I'm like, well, I guess, you know, can't get better than this. I guess it's all over now. I, I think there, we've all been to shows that certain songs seem preordained. Like, you know, at a certain point, something is coming. And this set had antelope closer written all over it. There was nothing else. Uh, Hood wouldn't have been the right choice. Too delicate, you know, a slave, too beautiful. <laughs> this was old school, you know, 93 fish energy. It's psycho and chaotic. Absolutely needed antelope. So once everything, you know, settled down in Weekapog, and I, I think there's a, the, the space that they explore there is really, um, really interesting and unique. And then to end in a place, you know, antelope, I, I always remember the first notes, the first chords, kind of once you could hear them and the place just, you know, going crazy. Knowing well, you know, it's what a, was coming. It, it's a big show when you describe, when you use the phrase, things settle down in Weekapog. Right, right. And then only to get back going here. And this is, it's either this or the, 
Island Tour Antelope is probably probably my two favorites. It's pretty fitting that they bookended the year for me because um, right. I was at the Island Tour also. But again, the playing here, it gets to a point where it's just chaotic, psychotic. Trey kind of leads up to it with these ringing, he has these notes kind of that ring out before he gets to that fast playing. And it's almost one of the antelopes that when they, you know, finally hit that ending there in the middle uh, and stop, I almost say thank God because I'm not sure how much more my brain could have taken <laughs> at that point. Well, hopefully it could take the encore, which was waiting in the velvet seat, Golgi apparatus, and wipeout. So in the waiting in the velvet sea served as the proper uh, breather song. That whole set, I guess the only breather you could have said was that spacey part of Weekapog. This was really the first time that we all got to sit back and take a breath. And of course, it's, you know, classic um, promoting story, the ghost still. That's so right. Between this, between this version and the Big Cypress version, I always have good memories of waiting the Golgi encore. This is the second straight show they played Golgi. They played Golgi at Albany on Wednesday. And of course, you know, bringing it home with Wipeout, which this was before all those instances of them running jokes into the ground, which I think may, Moby Dick might have been the first real one in a yeah. couple of years. So we were a little um, more wide out, you know, a little more, you know, probably fun attitude about it. But like we said, not that that's a negative thing, but it's just classic fish. They also trade John Fishman, Moby Dick, and a callback to, um, you know, the year before the 1127, uh, 1129 big runaway gym show. So right. there was a couple cool callbacks there at the end and just a, a great way to end. So Dennis, thank you so much for coming on today to talk about an all time classic show, certainly an all time classic set November 27th, 1998 at the Worcester Centrum. Before we cut out of here, can you remind everyone about your Twitter handle and what they could find on a nightly basis by following you? Sure. So my Twitter handle is at underscore Dennis underscore system. And right now, the channel that I upload uh, the shows to, it, it runs 24-7. There's 700-hour playlists of fish wow. on that channel. So at any point, at any time during the day, if you go there, there's a fish set from some point over the years. 
And usually at 8.30 every night, I'll start a show fresh and usually sit around and chat with the people in my room. Uh, I also, on my Twitter page, I have a Google Doc that was created by a really generous um, someone who came to the uh, side tube and chatted every night. He created a Google Doc for me. So all the shows that are on my page, I have on a Google Doc. There's probably 130, 140 shows with links to YouTube. So it's a great resource to watch a lot of great fish shows. Anyone at home? Like Dennis just said, if you just need some new perspectives on fish, you might know every note back and forth, but if you don't see it happen also on video, you're missing out on a lot. So Dennis, thank you for bringing that to anyone who needs it. And thank you again for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. I had a great time. When talking about fish in 1994, 1998, 2010, Dennis name-checked a lot of different shows. I had to look up a few of the facts, and not as many as I normally do during the fact check. Just the same, it is now time to expand on, correct, and make sure that we were right in all of our references, so it's time for the Attendance Bias Fact Check. Attendance Bias Fact Check. Toward the beginning of today's interview, Dennis brings up a show from June 18, 1994, multiple times as one of his favorites. This show was played at the UIC Pavilion in Chicago, and it's notable for a number of reasons, but especially its versions of David Bowie and Divided Sky. Trey has spoken about this version of Divided Sky. He's talked about a spiritual experience he had during the pause of the song. He saw colors, and he explained it as a, quote, translation of the band's playing. Dennis also brought up November 22, 1994, but couldn't remember where that show was played, it was played at the Jesse Auditorium at the University of Missouri. When we brought up the beginning of set two of the Wipeout show, there was some talk about Buried Alive and how many times I've seen it open a set. I name-checked Jones Beach and Mohegan Sun. I had to double-check that one, and I was half right. When I double-checked, Buried Alive was played on June 5th, 2009 at Jones Beach, but it didn't open the show. Wilson did, but Buried Alive was played second. When I name-checked Mohegan Sun, I was right. On July 10th, 2019, Buried Alive did open the show. Neither Dennis nor I knew what Mirror in the Bathroom was before the band played it in the middle of Choctaw's Torture. For the record, Mirror in the Bathroom was a hit song by the English Beat, an English ska band. It was released in 1980 and reached number four on the UK singles chart. When we were talking about whether or not Fish could just decide to play a great show or just turn it on... I compared the idea to how Michael Jordan would turn it on and play especially hard against the New York Knicks in the 90s. After a quick stat check, I couldn't find Jordan's overall record against the Knicks, but I did find out that his playoff record against the Knicks throughout his career was 19 wins and just 18 losses. He also scored over 50 points against the Knicks four different times. When talking about Mike's song, Dennis says that one of his favorite versions ever was from December 30th, 1993. That was at the Cumberland County Civic Center in Portland, Maine, and it is truly an incredible performance. I highly recommend you check it out if you haven't heard it before. Wipeout is the song that makes this show stand out, and I mentioned that the last time they played it prior to this show was in 1991. That performance was at the Capitol Theater in Port Chester, New York, and Wipeout was performed by Fishman on the Vacuum in between the Squirming Coil and Tweezer Reprise. 
And that's it for today's episode of Attendance Bias. Thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank Dennis Baker for coming on to talk about the Wipeout show. I'd like to thank Fish.net for all of the statistics I could look up for the fact check. And Fishin, Fish.in, for providing the recording used in today's episode. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please subscribe and review the show on whichever podcast app you use. And I'd like to thank you again for listening. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, reach out to me on social media, primarily on Twitter and Instagram. Say hello, and I'll send you a free sticker. Thank you again so much, and I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias. Attendance Bias.